It is good to see you all. Listen, I'm going to do my best just to kind of remove the awkwardness of what we're dealing with right now. So, like, when the kids are up and gone, if you feel like you want to move or slip to another seat or something like that, feel free to do that, okay? I'll be the one that takes that on the chin. So, I don't want people feeling awkward when we get together and we're doing family stuff. So, if you need to move seats or something like that, you feel free to do that. I know with the kids in here, uh, but having them not in here for praise and worship is really not an option I want to deal with because we've spent a year and a half making sure they know they're wanted, needed. That way when they turn 18, they still know they're wanted and needed, okay? Man, I love you. I'm thankful for the prayers uh, from this week. Thankful for uh, so many that have uh, reached out to love on my family, uh, to reach out in other ways, to love on uh, other people within our church and our community that have needed it uh, so badly. So I'm just so thankful today um, to be able just to stand in the midst of individuals that love like you really are family and we're for almost a decade now we've been pushing hard at trying to get that and we're really seeing some fruit so uh the the people here that make us work you are you're doing it there are moments that you look like heaven touching earth and that uh is amazing and i hope one day uh for my sake and for yours when we meet King Jesus, he is honored with the effort, and you and I get to hear him say, well done. I posted something uh, yesterday on Facebook that I saw, and I'm probably not going to be able to quote it uh, directly, but the idea was simply this, like the church is not an audience to entertain, the church is an army. It's an army to not only engage, but to equip. Uh, I've answered questions about why I do things the way that I do, why I preach, why, why I'm probably more of a teacher than a, than a preacher. Um, and that's why, because this moment right now, in the presence of you all as my church family, my goal is to equip you to do the work. My goal is not for you to come here, watch me do it, applaud me, and then walk off and spend the rest of your week living like you don't know the Lord. My goal as your shepherd is to make sure that you're equipped that tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're ready to engage someone with the goodness, the clarity, the love, and the care of the gospel. That you wake up tomorrow more a disciple than you were today. That is my only goal. You are an army. I see you that way. And I will never, just like the teenagers when I started teaching them, I will never lower that bar like you're something other than what you are. You are world-changing warriors that Jesus is turning loose on our community. It has to be that way. I'm not here begging people to get saved on a Sunday morning thinking that I'm dealing with people that don't know the Lord. I'm here to equip you to do the work so that you can go out, see fruit, diagnose things, help people, answer questions, lead them to the Lord, and then bring them here with you or introduce them to a church family in another spot. That is why I'm here. Because I see you as an army. 
not as people that need to be coddled and fed and patted on the back constantly so that you keep coming back for what I have to offer. I'm not here for that. I want to hear well done. I want you to hear well done. And the only way to do that is to make you an army of fierce individuals. And if the last five or six months has taught us anything, it is that our country desperately needs that right now. We need people that are in tune with who their Lord is and that he hasn't changed. And that we need to be at work. We need to be loving, caring more than anybody else. We need to be out front taking care of the business that needs to get done. I love our church and I am so thankful for it. I don't know where we're going. Second Samuel 5. <laughs> right? Oh. I'm still, you have to excuse me, like Monday, Monday night, I was still coming off some anesthesia, and I feel like there's still a little bit in my system at times, and then uh, there might be a little hydrocodone in there, helping kill some pain, I don't know, but we're going to get through it this morning. Um, and I'll tell you what started, like, this, this sermon is, is, I believe, going to turn out to be something special, and I want to tell you why, because it started really with repentance, Okay. Because I had to pull my kids aside the other day, and I had to apologize to all of them, including my wife, that in the last really five months since the baby's been born, things around our house have been a little chaotic. The leadership wasn't there. And you know what hit me? And listen, parents, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need you to work with me through this. When I thought about the idea that we hadn't had kids' classes in a while and that my kids hadn't learned any Bible. Now, some other people need to be convicted by that, too. I don't know who you are, the Lord does. So I had to sit my kids down and say, you know what? I failed. We can make a hundred excuses. Had a baby, been up all night, Dad, not feeling good, hurting, two surgeries. Could make a thousand excuses. Life's crazy, right? Money's hard, work's nuts, all this other stuff. You could make all of those. But I asked them this question, I'm going to ask it to you. When times are tough, do you let go of the things that are most important, or do you grab a hold of them tighter and dig in? Thank you. People are nodding their head because they know the answer to that. So, this morning's sermon, the idea was there, but the sermon was not born until the repentance that happened in front of my family that needed to hear it before I come and preach to you. So, we had devotions, we had prayer time, we had scripture memory, we had all that at the house. We did it on day one, we did it on day two. I got 20, I got like, okay. Show you how things work. So we had devotion day two, day two is the power of the tongue. Day two I tell the story of, the one I told you all maybe a couple weeks ago, about the rabbi and the story of which one's easier to get through. Theft, which one's easier to repay, which one's easier to fix, theft or gossip, right? Guess what all the kids said first, played right into my hands, theft. Oh, theft's easier, man, just talking, and the other one, like, well, okay, you rip up the paper, right? The rabbi comes in and says, okay, well, then take this piece of paper. You want to apologize, you want to repent of your sin, that's fine. Take this piece of paper up, rip it up into as many shreds as you can, and on a windy day, the rabbi threw that paper and said, now go pick up all the pieces, because that's gossip. Man, we had a real good lesson at home. Really good. The Lord was there. About an hour and a half later. Ah! 
So I'll usually give it, I'll usually give it a good five or ten seconds before I even interact with what the streaming is because a lot of times it's not good. Don't tell my kids. I love them. They're not drama kings and queens. So we sit there, and it's still going. Ah! Liza comes in. They love information when it's bad and when it's somebody else. Levi kicked Liam. Okay. So he comes in. Levi did kick Liam and knocked his tooth almost out. Oh, it's bleeding. Man, one of them big frontins is just sitting there now dangling, just waiting for just a little tap to be the rest of the way gone. So I'm thinking about that. Then I'm thinking about, man, we just had Bible lesson. How is this going on right now? So we're going into it. And then I started thinking that was the perfect idea of what we had just taught. Because what happened this morning, and I wish I would have thought about it, I would have put a picture in the thing. So Liam's upset yesterday because Big Brother just kicked his tooth out. Or really close. It's a, I mean, you can, you can fiddle with it. My mom would have gladly sold just let me touch it, and she would have went. Right? That's how she operates. So that's going on. That could have easily happened. He's crying. Everybody's upset. It's a big deal. Right? It's a big deal. You just kick your brother in the face. So I go back to the power of the tongue. I go back to the idea of which one's worse. Go back to the idea of how we talk to each other or about each other. You know what happens this morning when Liam got out of bed? Hey, Dad. And he's got the tooth in his hand and he's smiling as big as feet. You know what he wasn't worried about anymore? Being kicked in the face. Losing a tooth went away 18 hours. Really, it went away in like two. And I thought, man, what a powerful object lesson to what we just learned about. But if it were a rumor or gossip or something else, there'd be no way to get it back. No way to get over it. No way that it would be done in 18 hours. So when you're doing devotions with your family, expect crazy stuff to happen, right? Because it's just going to, especially when you got two boys and they don't listen. Then you tell them not to watch. So where are we at? Second Samuel chapter 5. I had to tell you that. That was too funny not to. Guardrails of grace. A couple weeks ago we talked about David. David's getting ready to make a mess. God stops him. God stops him in a way that's insulting. God stops him in a way that he doesn't like. God stops him in a way that dishonors him. But guess what? God stops him. Because if he takes the next move, he's going to be in a really bad position. So that's what we talked about then. Last week, we rotated out of that, and we rotated into the final week of King Saul. The idea of potential. Potential. I had a buddy that hated that word. I think just the idea of it is almost like a curse. Like you are, but you could be so much more. And there's an element of real truth in that. Like if, if somebody keeps telling you you're nothing but potential or you got all this potential, eventually they're, they're not okay with where you're at. Now, an honest assessment will let you know whether or not they are true or not. Just because somebody's upset with you, you haven't met your potential, doesn't mean they're the ones that have the problem. Sometimes it might really be you that has the problem. So dust yourself off and wipe the tears out of your eyes and get to work. Do the things that need to be done. Achieve it. So, what we were talking about, potential. 
1 Samuel 31 is where we were at. We talked about the idea that a legacy was destroyed. Saul and at least three of his sons were killed in that chapter. All the potential of his life is gone because it's now over. Repentance matters and Saul lived a life void of repentance. He could not properly apologize and turn from his wicked behavior. And because of that, the curses kept mounting. And we saw that in his life. Life of Saul is a sobering reminder that men don't end evil, vicious, and vile by accident. They grow into it by a series of smaller and unchecked sins. And I would tell you again that hard days need repentant people. You and I are living in hard days. We need people that are soft to God. That's what repentance is. Not soft to the world. Not squishy with things that matter. We need people that are, have a soft heart for God so that when he tells them to repent, when he tells them they are wrong, they can say, you know what, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I did the wrong thing, and turn around and go the opposite direction. That's the idea of repentance, not lip service. I've told you all before, and I still love it to this day, a buddy of mine at work said when his kids were younger, he would make them say they were wrong. He would not make them apologize. You can't make somebody feel sorry for something they did that was wrong. But you can tell them you're wrong to act that way. Tell that to them. I was wrong. You can eventually get to the point where you can, are you sorry? Eh, don't say that yet. You're still wrong. Right? So you can, we can actually really teach them what it means to be sorry. Because it comes from the in out, not the out in. We need repentant people. As we look into the life of David, as we get ready to kind of go into his life, there's enough there that my mind started working through David's road and a, and a couple different things that we're going to look at probably for the next couple months. A pair's approach, right? We're going to see in David's life, start to finish, there's the potential, there's the actual, there's the experience, the replicating, and the successful. We're going to see potential in many different areas. We're going to see the actual in many different areas. We're going to see the experience as we watch his life play out. And he gets good at what he's called to be. We're going to see that. We're going to see him replicate that in other people. He's already doing it. If you'll, if you'll think back to some of the sermons and some of the stories that you've read, David already replicates some of his best character qualities in those that follow him. So we're going to see that. And we're going to see what it means to be successful. Now, caveat on that last one. Honestly, Jesus is the only one to ever really do that to the fullest. Everybody else fails because they're handing things to people that are sinful. Or we've made so many bad decisions as we've kind of stumbled through life that by the time we get to the point where we're replicating and handing off, uh, our children or our grandchildren aren't ready to have what we're trying to give them. So the idea of, of, of the pair's approach landing in a successful transition in this world, I mean, we've seen it over and over. Business owner, church leader, whatever, son or daughter, may be good, may not be good. Grandson or may squander it all, right? Because we're handing things off to sinful people. Jesus, on the other hand, ministers for three years with at least 12, you know, a group of 12, more than that, but a group of 12 and then really a group of three. And what happens when his life finishes up well when you read the book of Acts you see this explosion of success because he did it and handed it to people and he had changed them so drastically that the rest of the world has never been the same 
So we're going to see this pairs approach with moments of intermittent fruits. Failures, repentance, unintended consequences, intentional changes, and then trying again. So our life is going to be potential, actual, that we're going to get experience. We're going to be replicating some of our best qualities, I hope, because I can guarantee you, you're going to replicate your worst ones. And hopefully we land with being successful. But all throughout that path, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be failure, repentance. There's going to be unintended consequences that we have to deal with. There's going to be intentional changes, and there's going to be trying again. Do not quit. David's life in Scripture is really one of the only ones. Jesus's will be, uh, except for the failure part. Uh, but it's only the only ones big enough to where you can actually pull that out and see it on repeat. Because there's so much of the Bible that is his story. Abraham, you could do it. Moses, you could do it. But there's only a handful that you could see something like this and actually build a model off of watching them live their life. So that's what we'll see for the next couple weeks. 2 Samuel chapter 5 is where we're at today, though. And we've talked uh, in the last couple weeks. We know the anointing of David. We know the promises that God has given him. We know the story of David and Goliath. And so we're going we're gonna to pull back those things in our memory as we go forward. We're not going to visit them again. The only passage we're really going to be in today is 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're only going to read the first six verses because I want you to see from potential to actual. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. What a beautiful promise. What an accountable thing to be said by God to a man especially a young boy. And you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. There's our passage. Kind of small for what we usually do. This has been the entire promise of every David message that we've talked about. Every time his name has been mentioned, you are watching the, the actualization of God's promise right now. At 37, when it was given... To a shepherd boy, the youngest in his family. Kingdom actualized after years of running and hiding. I want to read that to you again because what comes next, I need you to understand. After years of running and hiding. Nope. Running and hiding insinuates that God was wasting David's time. You could do the same with Joseph. Slavery, Potiphar's service, prison. I believe the number's like 13-ish years, maybe a little more. 
I didn't study that. I just remembered the story right now. But the idea is we could say, well, that was wasted time. It was not wasted time. And when we read things and we let thoughts slip into our mind, those are ones that have to be caught and sifted properly. Why? How's that look in your life? Well, for the last two or three years, my time has been wasted. No, it's not. Well, for the last couple months, my time has been wasted. No, it's not. Unless you've wasted it. God has not wasted it. He has a plan and a purpose. If he doles out your days, if he doles out your seconds, you better believe that he has a plan for each one of them. And so instead of running and hiding, what was God doing in David's life? He was molding him. He was testing him. Man, how about this one? He was strengthening him. How about this one? He was using him to serve other people. But wait a second, I'm supposed to be king. You mean I got to run around with this bunch of ragtag jerks? I just do it by myself. Could he have not have said that? Why are these <laughs> bitter of soul people gathering around me? I just want to be left alone. I'm trying to hide from the king. I don't need an extra 400, 600, 1,000 people giving up my location. God, you're wasting my time. Two decades. Where are you at? Do you even care? God was strengthening him for the days to come. He was teaching him to serve other people and to be faithful. How about this one? Those sweet psalms that were written or those hard psalms that were written while David was running for his life and just you and I can read them now in our hardest moments and say, man, if David felt like that, a man after God's own heart, I can take heart because God knows that when I'm upset and I'm hurting and I'm struggling, he's already told me it's okay to come to him with that stuff. Why? Because a man after his own heart wrote it in the two decades of running for his life. Running and hiding. Nope. God was growing him. Not only was he growing him internally, but he was growing him in influence. He was growing him for his eventual impact. God was using those moments. The promise that he made to that boy that's not actualized for two decades was not waste or a lie. It was exactly what David needed to be prepared for what was next. You see, if we read that passage and we say, man, God has wasted David's time, we've blasphemed our Lord. We've accused him of not knowing what he's doing. Unlike you and I, we may waste at times. God never does. So no matter what you are going through in your life, the Lord is not wasting that time. He's using it to prepare you for what's next. He's using it to prepare you to serve people. He's using it to prepare you to be ready to worship Him. You've not been left wasted. You've not been left with your time destroyed. Look back at verse 1 with me again. We're going to see the crown is on. 20 years in the making, the crown is on. David anointed king of Israel. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold... We are your bone and your flesh. We're seeing in verse 1 the ultimate fulfillment of God's original promise. You'll be king of Israel. 
Because, see, for seven and a half years, he's already been king of a part of Israel, but not the whole nation. You and I are watching now God's complete fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment of God's original promise is happening right now. The 12 tribes come, and they say, you are our king. I love this one. They give him the strongest commitment. Your bone and flesh. We are your bone and flesh. We are your people. We are your people. What a beautiful commitment. We're your bone and flesh. How about verse 2? In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. They're giving him all the praise. They've come in. They've given him, we're watching God's fulfillment. They've given him a strong commitment. They're giving him a greatest of compliment. You have already led us. And God has said, you're going to be shepherd and you're going to be king. The Lord told you, David, you were going to be shepherd and king of the nation of Israel. The crown is being placed. People have come in and said, man, you're our bone, you're our flesh. We're your bone, we're your flesh. We'll go with you. We will follow you. Take us under your wing. So what do you do, verse 3? What do you do with people like that? Covenant on. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Friends, as you're living this life, as you're paying attention to what's going on, young, young people, man, I wish I could make you believe this. If I could force you to believe a couple things, this would be one of the ones I would force you to believe. When you see people that are dedicated and loving, whatever else is going on in their life, grab them and draw them close. Because when they, when they make commitments to people like that, you need to be doing life with people like that. They covenant with you and they, you watch them protect someone else's character when that person isn't around. You see them do hard things. Young people, those are the people you want to gravitate toward. They may not be the best in sports. They may not be the smartest. They may not be the prettiest. Honestly, at times, they may not even be the nicest. And that's fine. But they're tenacious. The nation of Israel walked in front of King David and said, You're our bone. You're our flesh. God has told you you're going to do these things. We want to follow you. And David says, boom, let's get married. That's kind of the idea. He makes a covenant with him. In front of God, you can be my people. I'll be your king. There will come moments in your life when outside of the presence of God and all the things spiritual, the one thing you will long for is one or a handful of people that love and live like this. As you find them when you go about your life, when you see them, grab them and draw them close. As opposed to looking for the biggest and the brightest, the richest, right? The most prideful, the one that sells himself the best. What do you do with people that speak like that and love like that? You do life with them. David married them before the Lord. Let's covenant together. I'm going to be your king. You're going to be my people. Because you will have a group of people around you that no matter what happens, they're going to have your back. They're going to love you. They're going to care for you. When you need something, they're going to be there. It may only be two or three or five. 
God help us be a church where there's at least 20 or 30 of us. And a lot of times what I want to see is it's not character that dictates this with us. It's time. You don't have enough time to build relationships with 50 people like this. But you, everybody has enough time to build two, three, five, maybe ten. Where you love each other, take care of each other. Maybe you can do it in a group. Maybe you do it in a small group. Maybe you do it in a Sunday school. But you need to do that. And younger ones, please, I'm begging you, listen to me. This kind of character, don't pass it up. Keep those people close. You'll need them, and they'll be there. Promised as a teen, now 37 years old, God promises are given only in his timing. God's promises are given only in his timing. You know what can be rushed? Counterfeits. David can stab King Saul in the cave and take the kingdom. And he can do that probably a decade before. He will have set himself up for failure. David can stay with King Achish and be his servant and be his bodyguard and defend him well and fight against his own people, the Israelites. He can do that, but he will have corrupted God's blessing. Or he can hand it to the Lord instead of counterfeiting it by rushing it. The honor, one of the honors of David's life was this promise took two de decades to fulfill and he didn't try to make it faster. It's funny, man, Sunday school downstairs was talking about this exact idea. And it was the temptation of Jesus. Where you can go, Jesus, hey, uh, lust of the flesh, stone into bread, eat, you'll feel better. Number two is lust of the eyes. The devil takes them up and says, look at all the kingdoms, I'll give them to you. You can have them, they're mine to give, and that's not a complete lie, you all. Don't think he's lying, he's not. We live in his kingdom right now, prince of the power of the air. This is his world. And so he promises that to Jesus, says you can have it. And Jesus said, nope, not worshiping you. And the third one is this, take yourself up to the temple mount, throw yourself off, pride of life. Well, if you don't want my help, Jesus, do it yourself. Toss yourself off. When God catches you at the bottom, they'll make you Messiah, and you can have the crown, but you don't have to walk through the cross. Same tactics since day one. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, corrupt the timing, take God's blessings and make them a curse. David could have done that on many occasions in two decades. Instead, he waited. And now in 2 Samuel chapter 5, what do we see? The actualizing of God's blessing. From potential to actual, two decades. The youngest teenager anointed king will be, uh, will be a shepherd boy, right, at 37 years old. The military expert, the cultural hero, the integrity stalwart, the worldwide legend, and the man of honor will be made king. Now, wouldn't that be cool to have that as a king? Who do you want? The guy that shortchanged the process? Or the man standing there now after two, two decades of running and hiding and loving and caring and serving and listening and obeying and being honorable. Who do you want to follow? The process matters. Don't rush it. Don't corrupt it. Don't taint it. 
Don't listen to the devil when he whispers for you to, to usurp it, go around it. You don't have to struggle like this. You don't have to feel this way. You don't have to do this. Just reach out and do it yourself. Don't take your time. Don't put in the effort. Don't study hard. Don't do this. Don't do that. Just go ahead and take it if you can. Listen, who do you want to follow? Someone that shortchanged the process or do you want that military expert? Right? Who was David at 37? The people in 2 Samuel 5 just told you who he was. Man, from the very beginning, you let us out. You brought us back in. The Lord told you, you're the anointed one, the one for the moment. We're going to listen. We're going to follow. You're our bone. You're our flesh. That's a pretty ringing endorsement. And who was the guy they were talking to? He was a military expert. Trained, hardened in battle, brilliant, ferocious, faithful, cultural hero. Someone that everyone knew and loved and would follow and respect. He was an integrity stalwart, right? Like nothing's going to shake his integrity. If he wanted to, he could have taken the kingdom and all he had to do was wipe off Saul. I mean, besides, God already told him it was his anyway. Why can't he just run the dagger through him, kick him out of the cave and say, hey, I'm here, let's do this. But his integrity wouldn't let him. Do you remember the repentant part of that passage when David says uh, he walks out of the cave after Saul leaves and he says, king, I don't know who's telling you lies about me, but I would never hurt you. But because, right, his soul is, is, is grieved. And he says, I've, I've, I've lifted my hand against God's anointed and I've cut off the, the tip of your garment. I've cut off the edge of your cloak. I've cut off the tassel on your robe and I'm going to throw it back to you. I am repenting of that. It was wrong. He is so repentant and so sensitive to who God is and what he's doing. His integrity is so strong. He is a stalwart in integrity. He's a worldwide legend. Other kingdoms know him and they are scared of him. He is powerful, authoritative. And when he steps on the battlefield, the Lord moves mountains on his behalf. And finally, he's a man of honor. But it took two decades to get there to be ready. God wasn't shortchanging him or harming him because he made him wait. God was making him ready for the moment. From potential to actual is a process. And we make real disasters when we work them fast. So finally today as we get ready to wrap this one up, I want you to learn from David's road. And I left and I couldn't figure out, I had my notes, I thought I sent them, I didn't the presentation, and I couldn't figure out why. And then when I went downstairs this morning and I was putting everything back together as fast as I could, I figured it out. Because Saul's life ended with the same kind of slide, patterns and progression. There are patterns that build progressions, and you and I eventually pay the cost. Saul's life had one. We talked about it last week. His legacy gone, his kingdom gone, his will to live gone. In disarray. David will have one too. And the patterns in his life so far at the age of about 37 have now set him up to be the person that all the tribes of the nation walk in and say, you're our bone, you're our flesh, we will follow you. Be our king. So we need to learn from David's road too. And what do we see in that? Well, we need the idea of being faithful. Tend the sheep well. And I keep, every time I say that, I, I keep thinking of young men. Young men. Daters of women. And I can't even say young men anymore because sometimes they're, they're getting a little older now. Tend the sheep well. Before you're the king or the husband, you better be good at being 
boyfriend. Women, if they're not, boot them. Like, the insanity that we go through in our culture is so crazy because, listen, you're only looking for one. You're only looking for one. Now, the world might tell you something different, and, and the world can have that hell and that chaos because they pay for it every day. God says you're looking for one. So you can be patient. You can be picky. And if you're not tended well as a sheep, you won't be tended well as a wife. Don't make him a king if he can't be a shepherd. Also think about it in the context of work. I've been promoted at my job, and I've never spent more time grieving over things I should have done in the last 17 years than I have since the day I got promoted. Being a good sheep, being a good shepherd, means you'll be a good king. Being a bad shepherd, those patterns are going to make you a bad king. And I don't care what it is in life that you're looking at. Women, it's the same thing. If you're a bad girlfriend, you're going to be a bad fiancé, and you're going to be a bad wife. And, and that doesn't mean you do whatever your boyfriend, your fiancé, or your husband want. It means when you dishonor God as a girlfriend, and you dishonor God as a fiancé, you will dishonor God as a wife. So don't want to be a queen if you're not going to be a shepherd. Zechariah 4.10 says this. Dr. Falwell used to quote it all the time, and it, and it always pierced my heart. Do not despise the day of small things, meaning be faithful when things are small so God can trust you when they get bigger or more intense or more in-depth. Go back with me two days as a pastor and as a Christian and as a husband and as a father. If I don't apologize to my kids, I'm usurping this whole principle because I've not tended my first flock well, and now I'm going to come in and pretend to tend this one well. There are All these pieces connect. And I know sometimes I don't do the best job of doing that for you, but all these pieces connect. Number two, know the source of your calling and your power. Why? 1 Samuel 17, I come in the name of the Lord. You know who says that? The shepherd boy with a sling. Remember who he says it to? A dude that's about 10 foot tall, carrying a spear that's probably 100 pounds, been in more battles than David has been alive. And this little shepherd boy comes walking in with that sling. You come to me in your own name, your own power, and your own strength. Let me show you something. I come to you in the name of the Lord. Know your source of the calling, of the calling you have, and the power you have. Know that. Get promoted without doling out demotions. Say, so what do you mean? Well, when your life gets elevated, don't demote everybody else around you. Everybody's been around somebody like that. What did David do the entire time? He honored the king. So when the people in the street are singing his praises, David slain his ten thousands, Saul has slain his thousands. It's not David looking at Saul and saying, what do you think about that song? Think about that, man. That's a good one. It's got a nice ring to it. Very creative women here in Israel. What do you think, king? It's not him doing that. Saul's issues, listen, sinful people get, get ate up by their own stuff. You don't have to touch it. Be more honoring than they are. Their internal chaos will eat them up. You don't have to dole it out. Just step back and be honoring. So if you get promoted, don't go around doling out demotions to everyone else. Always choose honor. Always. Even if you're angry, choose honor. Don't fight dirty. Don't corrupt processes. Don't do things to get your way. Don't manipulate. 
Don't try to hurt people. Even when you're angry, choose an honorable road. Even if it's like, I can honor you as a person, but that argument's horrible. That, that is wrong. God loves you. You're made in the image of God. That's wrong. Always choose honor. Why? What does honor do? Honor creates trust. What does trust do? Trust creates safety. I'm telling you, I'm showing you right now how to build up that group of people around you. I'm showing it to you. Honor creates trust. Trust creates safety. Safety creates loyalty. And loyalty builds commitment. I'm showing it to you right there. If you are an honorable person, if people, when they see you in public and in private, they see honor, you will build around you. It is contagious. They will flock towards you, and you will have that group of people. You'll have it in this church. At a bare minimum, you will have it in this church. I will fight till the day I die to make that our culture. I promise you. If you're honoring and trustworthy, if you're loyal, if you're committed, that group is going to come around you. It is contagious, and it feels great. Finally, friends, as I finish this morning, what is, the, what is this, the single message of this morning's whole sermon? As we watch David's life start to play out, he's going from this potential into the actual. As we see that happening and they come forward to play this morning, as we see that happening, what are you looking at? We're looking at David being faithful. To who? To his God. To you and I, it would be Christ. He doesn't know the name yet. He doesn't know the person. He's being faithful to his God. You and I are being faithful to Christ. We're being faithful to our character. And in that, we are being faithful to our calling. If we will do that, the Lord will bring about his promises to you. And we go back into the idea of not knowing scripture as Christians. That is, that is I mean, that is inexcusable. It really is. And why do I bring that up right now? Because... If I want God to fulfill his promises, I need to know what they are. Because the counterfeit is so easy to bite into. The counterfeit is everything the world is offering you. It's everything the world is offering you. God's promises are in God's word. What does he promise? So if we don't know God's word, we won't know his promises. So why would you be faithful to Christ? Why would you be faithful to your character? Why would you be faithful to your calling if you don't know the goodness of the promise God has given you? To David, it was the kingdom. To you, it's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. To you, it's Jesus saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. To you, it's Jesus saying, you're going to have trouble in the world. Take heart, I've overcome the world. To you, it looks like the slide on the song we sang. As a believer, am I really blameless, Lord? That promises in Scripture. As a believer, am I really holy, Lord? That promise is in Scripture. How about this one? Just run them all the way down and get to this one. As a believer, Lord, am I really chosen? Do you really love me? You see what kind of failure I am, what I've broken, the mess I've made, the things I've thought, not even the things I've done. That promise is in this book. If you don't know the book, you won't know why you need to hang on to Jesus, hang on to your character, and hang on to your calling when everything else wants you to cash it in and let it go. This is why it's much easier to live the world's way. Because all of their promises are immediate. The curses come the next day, the next hour, ten years from now, or when you die and wake up in front of an angry God. That's the world's promises. God's promises take a little longer. 
Why? Because he gives them not only when he's ready to give them, but when you're ready to receive them. And they're always much better than you anticipate. So why hang on to Jesus? Why hang on to your calling? Why watch your character when the rest of the world looks like they're having a blast out there making a nasty mess of everything? Why do that? Because the promises of God in this book are far better than you've ever dreamed. Would you stand this morning as they sing and play? If you need something, you come.